Welcome to Signs of the Times, a look at recent world events from around our kitchen table. Welcome back to another Signs of the Time podcast, our studio kitchen recording area is quite full tonight. We have Chuck from BC back with us. We have Erica from Hawaii. We have Jason, the long lost son of Laura Knight Yadchik here with us tonight as well. (laughs) (laughs) You're not on mic, Jason. It's not going to (laughs) work. Sitting sitting back in the, the far corner, we have uh, Billy Bob from Singapore, and we have Dave from Hawaii. We were talking earlier tonight about the militarization of Hawaii, and Erica had uh, some very interesting things to say about it, so we invited her to come back and to share some of what she's learning living in Hawaii. Apparently on the island that they live, uh, there are 56 different U.S. military bases. How big is this island? Um, I'd say 150 miles by by uh, 100 miles. Not very large, about an hour and a half across each way. And What percentage of the island is covered by these bases? Um, I'm not sure the percentage, but I know that 65% of the population is employed by the military. So it's a huge economic base. Mm-hmm. 65%. Before we get into uh, the current militarization of the Hawaiian Islands, we're going to have Dave give us a little overview of the history and how things developed and got to the point where they are now. Yeah, I'd like to give a, a brief history uh, about Hawaii, or I should say the kingdom of Hawaii. Um, what most people don't realize, and especially Americans, um, that Hawaii is just not the 50th state of America, but it was actually uh, its own kingdom with its own monarchy and constitution, with treaties um, with other nations around the world. In 1893, there was a coup of uh, businessmen, uh, descendants of missionaries, in conjunction with the U.S. military, uh, in particular the Navy. And basically what they did was held the Queen of Hawaii, Queen Lilikalani, um, basically at gunpoint and said, sign over the nation or else. And the U.S. Navy uh, parked ships out in the harbor, and she was forced under duress to sign over the kingdom, which is really illegally occupied territory. Kind of like Iraq. The Queen was um, locked in her palace for two years in one room. And slowly the process began, how it would be divided, who would rule. The lands were essentially put up for sale, and the Hawaiians moved to various areas and not really included in the whole process. And and before this all happened, like, can you guys maybe give like sort of an overview of, of what Hawaiian culture and society was like uh, before the uh, invasion? <laughs> Essentially, the Hawaiians, um, like many other native people, did not have land ownership. They lived in areas called Ahupua'a, which was a division of land that was from the ocean to the mountain. And they raised their own food in fish ponds. They grew 
taro and other foods, and um, a chief was chosen to run the area based on how well he could feed his people. If he was unable to feed his people, then he obviously was no longer chief. And so they had this idea that of conservation and appreciation and respect for the land. They had what was called a kapu system, which was there was certain things they were allowed to do and not do. And they had a, a makahiki season where they they had games and other um, times of rest. And then the rest of the year they worked and grew food and essentially lived like many Native people in, in connection with the land. They had sacred sites where they had different ceremonies. And um, when the first Westerners came, essentially uh, the belief is uh, Captain Cook was when things started to change. But part of what their downfall was was that they were open and, and they believed in embracing Captain Cook because in their legends he was the god Lono returning. And Lono was supposed to return from the ocean with white sails on a ship. So when Captain Cook returned, they just assumed that he he was the god Lono. So they embraced him. That didn't last long. Uh, the missionaries came, and um, they realized it was a perfect environment to grow sugar, and that's when the C&H, Hawaiian sugar, started, and the rest essentially is history, I guess. So you're painting the picture of a rather idyllic society where people shared, people networked together to uh, survive. Leadership was based on... People providing for their for the leader providing for their people, uh, quite different from what we know nowadays. One of the big um, setbacks was what was called the uh, land divisions, where the missionaries decided that they wanted to own plots of land, and they kind of worked into the constitution that lands could be divided and that they could actually purchase property. And, and this is when the whole idea of the plantation started with raising sugar and then eventually it would be pineapple. And the missionary families had a large stake in that. Okay, so if we fast forward now many, many decades, uh, we get to a situation where the island has become something of a military outpost for the United States in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, can you talk a bit about the the manifestations of this militarization as you see it in, well, in your daily life? Yeah, basically Hawaii is very strategically located. It's 3,000 miles in the middle of the Pacific. It's the farthest <laughs> landmass isolated from, it, from any other spot in the world. It's um, There's also Midway, which is between Hawaii and Japan, and... Um, Essentially, what was foreseen was Pearl Harbor was a strategic point, you know, to have ships dock and... Uh, basically, the, the military saw, saw it as a very strategic zone. And, you know, together with the uh, missionary descendants and businessmen, um, they conspired to throw over the monarchy and implement the land division. And the military basically set up shop. And today what you see is uh, the 56 military installations around the island, and it just continues to grow. Now, especially with the uh, war in Iraq, um, 
It's an interesting thing coming from Singapore to see the American attempt at militarizing the Malacca Straits, uh, where reputedly some uh, one-third to 60% of various essential commodities travel through those straits. And they're using the, uh, the pre pretext of piracy. And the nations who actually have the legal territorial right, being Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, have actually instituted joint naval patrols. But you can sit on a Sunday afternoon having a beer and you can see U.S. warships, particularly U.S. submarines, regularly patrolling through the Malacca Straits. I wonder whether the militarization and this expansion of American power in the Pacific is a precursor of what's going to come. You know, do we expect North Korea? Is it, is it a real issue? Or are we looking at something much more fundamental, which is American strike against somewhere like China? Because uh, Hawaii is the within striking range of the ch- primary primary targets of China. And that there are many um, rocket bases on the outer islands. Oahu is predominantly the most militarized island in the Hawaiian chain. There are seven islands. There are smaller islands with different types of military installations that aren't very well known, one of them being Kauai, which is the northernmost island, which has what you're talking about, rocket bases. And and um, the big island now, which is the island where Pu'o'o, or the active volcano, is, uh, the military just acquired several thousand acres of land to test their new striker brigade which is also being used in Iraq. It's what's considered an urban assault vehicle. And there are more than 15 urban assault vehicles on these various islands. And um, they are open to be viewed by the public as a sense of desensitization to it being there. They um, do plan on driving them around and making them more commonly accepted. And they had a campaign of letting the public come and view them, letting children crawl inside and see all the high-tech equipment. And um, essentially those same striker brigades are being used in the Middle East and they are shipped from the Middle East back to Hawaii where they are cleaned from DU and other chemicals by the people who live there. Well, it's very nice of George Bush to want to get the citizens involved in this kind of thing, get them used to seeing soldiers on the street, get them used to seeing uh, urban assault vehicles. Uh, bodes well for the future. And uh, what was what's interesting about Hawaii is that um, – There are small protests, but essentially if you speak out against the military, you speak out against the economy of the state that you live in because it is 65% of the population is employed by the military. If you dare speak up, you are disrespecting your fellow community members, for one, and you are not supporting your government. And the only people that seem to be upset about this is the native Hawaiians because when the queen was overthrown, they stole over 200,000 acres of land and they are, the military is occupying what is called ceded lands. They pay a dollar a year per acre to control these ceded lands. And many native Hawaiians have thought that there are 
endangered species. Hawaii has the largest number of endangered species in the world now, and they're trying to conserve these endangered species, and the military continually argues that they need this land to test various weapons like live fire training, bombs, ammunition. Is there any kind of a independence movement among the Native Hawaiians? There is, and right now in in the government there is a bill trying to be passed called the Akaka Bill, and it was started by Senator Akaka, and it was to grant Native Hawaiians Native American status. The one trip up about that is that if the Hawaiians are granted Native American status, they will never be able to attain sovereignty. What percentage of the population in the Hawaiian Islands is Native? I believe it's 12 to 16 percent, and that's not very much. No. And... Are they kind of evenly mixed among the islands, or are there enclaves? Or um, Certain islands, like the island of Molokai, has the largest concentration of Native Hawaiians. Um, they have fought diligently not to have the military on their island, and they do not have it. They've also avoided fast food restaurants, large commercial chains. They're constantly fighting for what's left of their islands. I mean, they're, they're really anti-American. In a sense, yes. I mean, no fast food? <laughs> <laughs> but um, like many movements, it's um, splintered. They can't seem to come together on exactly what their focus is. Is it the ceded lands, which seems to be the largest problem? Or is it Quinlilio-Kalani's trust, which is in the billions of dollars? Billions of dollars? Yes. Well, that a, a movement such as the Native Hawaiian movement is splintered is not surprising because we see the same thing in in movements like that around the world and often it's because the people they're fighting against send in their their agent provocateur to go in and divide and conquer you know we talked uh recently on this show about the education system and how it's meant it was conceived to divide students to start this division at an early age this is just an age-old tactic. Well, an interesting thing about the economy in Hawaii also is that more than 60% of the population is also on federal assistance or welfare of some sort, whether it be medical, food stamps, or financial aid programs. And that's also something I think that goes hand-in-hand with Native populations, where you look at the Native population in the United States, you look at the Native population in Canada, and it's a, it's the same thing. And They've drugs. been marginalized, yeah, drugs, drugs alcohol. Are. That suggests that 30% of the U.S. military is on food aid. Yes. Which is a real issue among the U.S. military, yes, as I understand. These These men are expected to go and die for, you know, whatever God and country or whatever one does when one dies for America. And yet they're on food aid and food stamps and aid programs. Yes. It's a great job fighting for your country as a patriotic American, isn't it? Well, and I think, too, um, with the price of gas and all these things is that, in a a sense, right now, we're looking at $4 a gallon for gasoline. And um, I think the reason that the price isn't higher than that is because the soldiers, in a sense, have to be appeased. They still have to buy gas. They still have to live in the community. And so 
they, unlike the the residents there, get a discount on almost everything. Insurance products that they buy, they get a, a military discount. I was going to say something along the lines of Billy Bob there, <clears throat> that at one point I was working in assisted living, you know, volunteer work, and a lot of the people that were in there were uh, vet- vets, you know, Vietnam vets and things like this. And one of the biggest problems that they had was the fact that the government was not giving them the aid that they were supposed to be getting. And mm-hmm. it was a big problem. A lot of people with a lot of, you know, very serious medical conditions were denied their benefits because mm-hmm. they just said, you're not bad enough. And, um, you know, these people, they're not getting the actual help that the government is claiming they are. Well, this is one of the things that Bush has been doing since he got into power. Uh, the Bush administration has been cutting uh, the budget for vets, cutting their medical budgets. Uh. And and I think that most of the people in the military and most of the, the vets in America should see this as something that's simply unacceptable. You know, you're fed this whole story of how you're, you know, you're going to go out and defend your country and how, you know, America never leaves anyone behind and you're fed all this propaganda, you know, never leave a man behind. And yet, you know, they're leaving people behind in their own country. You know, they don't even need to be on the battlefield to be left behind at this point. We certainly saw that in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where it was the poor blacks who were left behind. Another issue that uh, you've raised in in discussions with us about Hawaii is the presence of the Mormons. Which is a problem for everybody. In Hawaii, it (laughs) seems that basically in order to survive, you either fall into one of two categories, the military or religion. Um, It's funny how it comes down to that division, isn't it? Really, um, Hawaii has 20 out of 22 agricultural climates in the world, and yet we're only producing pineapples now. And now Hawaii has become the largest GMO manufacturer of corn, and small farmers are essentially being pushed out, and large corporate interests are taking over. The question of welfare seems to be a very important one. Um, yes, it, uh, Hawaii is definitely a state that's involved with welfare, and um, as I said earlier, 60% are on some sort of assistance. And um, in 1996, um, when Bill Clinton was president, he enacted laws that each state was responsible for their own welfare reform. And in Hawaii, they instituted which was called Operation Pono, and essentially it was each welfare recipient was limited to a five-year financial assistance subsidy. Uh, they had a work requirement of 30 hours a week work and also a work program that they had to be enlisted in. And uh, what we've seen in, in since that time is that the um, people who, after five years, lose their benefits essentially end up homeless, living on the beaches, which in a tropical climate is not essentially that bad, assuming there are public restrooms and showers. But what's happened in the last few years is that the military, along with the police, has come in and started eliminating and moving out all the people that are living on the beaches, and they're doing this with military force. And uh, I think a couple months ago the Signs ran an article that we emailed to them about families um, with grandchildren and children 
were evacuated from their homes and they were pleading to people that we are not from Japan or the United States. We are from Hawaii and we have nowhere left to go. It doesn't sound a lot different from the uh, Victorian workhouse, does it? And supposedly our societies have developed beyond the workhouse conditions of uh, forced enslavement and criminalization if you cannot toe the line and get with the program. Well, essentially, Hawaii, too, is um, a vacationer's destination. We have all seen ads come see the beautiful Hawaii, the hula dancers, and many people in the sovereignty movement have talked about this is what they call the prostitution of aloha. They essentially have native people who make five twenty-five an hour, who a lot of them can't afford to even rent an apartment where they live, and yet their dance, their language, their culture is essentially up for sale as a advertisement commodity. Meanwhile, the uh, native Hawaiians, um, as was said earlier, are forced out of housing, uh, forced to live on the beach with not much, living in basically shantytown. Um, then the police come in and say, now you, you can't even stay here. You know, they're, they're forced, forced to go nowhere. They have nowhere to go. You know, they have no resources. Um, the education is really lacking for n- Native Hawaiians. Um, um, recently, there, there was a court decision involving Kamehameha Schools, which was originally set up as a trust for Native Hawaiians to receive education. And what has happened is it's been challenged that it is racist and they must now accept anyone into the schools. Well, it shows the the blatant lack of of concern and respect that originally the outsiders were welcomed and in olden times, the anyone who came to Hawaii and participated in the community became a Hawaiian national. And um, now it's it's got to the point where we want, if we're an outsider, we want the same benefits that the natives get. So what Dave was talking about, the Kamehameha Schools, is a school that was set up by the Quinlaleo Kalani Trust so children could learn about the language and the culture and have a chance, as others do, of going to university, of making some sort of a change, maybe representing their people's interest in the government. And now, um, because a a particular child wanted to attend Kamehameha schools and was uh, denied, they took the case to court and um, they ruled in his favor. Now the school has to allow him to attend. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, they, when you started explaining what happened with the 1893 incidents, you were saying it was the missionaries and the businesses. This seems to be a very common thread You're coming from Asia. It's the missionaries and the businesses that have done everything. I'm a next-door neighbor of the Philippines. The Filipinos don't seem to have uh, got off very much differently from the Hawaiians. They're essentially slaves. Their country was run into the ground. Uh, corrupt dictators were supported, uh, notoriously, obviously, Ferdinand Marcos. And the institution that controls everything and that makes these people unable to come together and do anything is the religion. 
Ironically, Ferdinand Marcos has a house in Hawaii, and when he was chased out of the Philippines, his wife and son came to Hawaii. And 3,600 pairs of shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And we've had a uh, Filipino um, governor up until recently, tell Linda Lingle, the first Republican governor elected in Hawaii in 40 years. And good buddy of Ariel Saron. And George Bush. And George Bush and is very, our hero. very, very <laughs> pro-military. Um, originally, uh, about a couple months ago, they were talking about possibly even shutting down Pearl Harbor because of its lack of income. And that was dreadfully fought because so much of the people who live in Hawaii base their income on working at the naval base. It's actually kind of disturbing when the military is some sort of economic force. Even it is, but you know, this is not something that it's always represented as. It's not something that's supposed to be influencing the economics of a country. You know, this is absolutely it's kind of absurd that people consider it you know an economic force. You know, the the art of killing people, bombing people, is something that makes money. And it's, you know, I mean, of course, we, we, we see it as that. But, you know, this is this is a very twisted version of what a military, you know, was originally intended to be. Essentially, too, what we see in Hawaii, because of its remote location, is a introduction <laughs> of ideas tested on the population. For example, the Stryker Brigade. Um, I I think that part of why they they test these ideas in Hawaii is to get to see what type of response they would get from the people. And uh, numerous cases have been cited where they've also done germ warfare on the people of Hawaii and monitored what type of response they have. We know for sure in the North Shore where there's um, plenty of military bunkers and uh, a lot of training, they have sprayed smallpox on the population. It's kind of absurd, the level of exploitation of Native peoples in general. You know, now we're talking about the Hawaiians, you know, but this is the modus operandi of, of governments, especially of America, when it comes to, you know, the Native Americans, so to speak. And now the Hawaiians, where you take things like, you know, they were being kicked off the beach after they had been kicked off their homes. You're basically criminalizing their way of life. The people who, basically speaking, their way of life was to live on the land, fish, this, that, and the other thing. And then they've criminalized their way of life. But at the second time, you have this whole hypocritical sexifying and and selling of their language, their dances, you know, their, their manners and this, that, and the other thing are being sold. So it's it's kind of it's this very twisted exploitation of people that's that's more disturbing than just going in and wiping them out. They're not. They're going in and they're they're, they're raping them essentially completely of everything, you know, culturally, monetarily, spiritually being raped, you know, till they're gone. And this is the same thing that's happened with this, you know, like the Sioux and the Navajo and Blackfoot in Canada and things like this. You know, they're just it's a, it's and a and, and tourism is a, is a basis of, aside from the military, really the only job opportunity that most people have. Either you work in the service industry or you work for the state. And that's a forced choice, essentially. You're, you're forced to either accommodate one way or another. 
and it, it causes a lot of tension. And I, and I believe that one thing I always hear is, oh, don't the na- aren't the natives angry? Don't they hate the Howley or the white people? And essentially, what people don't understand is is the basis for this frustration. There is an extremely high theft rate. Tourists are being cars are being broken into and they feel victimized yet they have no idea how they contribute to the victimizing of the people that are there. And we return to the question of education in the United States once more. When you've got a population that doesn't know anything, they can be led around by the nose. And and they don't want to question because again coming back to the idea of Questioning the military means that you don't support your brother or your cousin or your auntie or somebody who is who is in the military to support their family because that is their last choice. Either that or sell their house and move to Vegas. And the last choice of many people seems to be the draft that's going to be coming up. Uh, if speculations are correct. And it's going to be the same. Your son's been drafted, yet if you object to the war in Iran or... Syria or wherever the next one's going to be, you're going to be betraying your son, who's essentially a forced slave conscript to an evil military power. I was just going to say on the topic of, you know, of education, and we're going to be getting into it a little bit later, you know, life isn't multiple choice, but it's sort of had this whole multiple choice existence. You know, you either pick A or you pick B. You know, you either work for the military or you work for the food service. Same theory. You know, game theory is basically what it is. You're absolutely correct. Why is there only A and B? You know, you can make your own choice. You have the right to create a choice for yourself. You know, you don't have to to, to accept what you're given. If someone says it's either A or B, you say, well, guess what? I'm going to create C. And then I'm going to choose that. And that's what free will is about. And that's what choosing is about. And that's also why we're getting the clampdown in the United States to prevent people from thinking outside of the box, from thinking outside of choice A and B, and it's going to be harder and harder and harder for people to actually make other choices. It's going to become impossible, because you can say, okay, I'm going to choose C, but guess what? The structure has been put in place that you can't. If you want to walk out of the doors, they've all been welded shut. Well, I, I think that what, what's happened is is uh, essentially a, a, a state of desperation, is, is you have these forced choices, and... Um, the religions that are coming to Hawaii essentially thrive if they provide the idea or the pseudo-idea of community, of family. And um, the Mormons have come to Hawaii and have kind of laid their structure over the the Polynesian ideas of family and um, provided an environment for people to prosper, to, to work for the church or the Polynesian cultural center and attain a free education at BYU and um, let's bring a young university yes. we talk about uh, forced choice and like for the native Hawaiians they, they've been been given a choice uh, be given the status of Native Americans which they're not and which will give them the same rights as Native Americans and we can all see what that's done for the uh, Native Americans which is basically round them up and if if they if they make the choice of Native American status, it really pushes them away from Hawaiian sovereignty, which is what they are, Hawaiians. 
And as many people forget, they had a constitution. They had treaties with other countries. They were a, a respected nation that had freedom and democracy. <laughs> well, even uh, Bill Clinton came out and apologized for the overthrow of the kingdom. And, of course, that's just nothing but lip service. And, of course, now you have Hawaiians on, you know, basically on welfare, um, being forced off their own land. They're uh, a huge drug problem. They're having trouble with their own history, you know, just rediscovering who they are. Um, a lot of people don't realize that uh, Hawaiians weren't allowed to speak their own language till 1978. Sounds very similar to the situation the Aboriginals found themselves in in Australia. They became a completely outcast people. I think it's quite interesting to to see Australia, the UK, and the United States are this triumvirate of power that we have. Uh, if you like using George Bush's own terms, the axis of evil. Uh, and I'm just thinking geographically. I look at Australia, Hawaii, the United States West Coast, the US East Coast, and the UK. I very much doubt there's not a strike aircraft in the world that can't make a trip to a target from one of those four locations. Uh, and probably a monitoring station that can't listen to a radio broadcast or a podcast from one of those four places. But they can't find Osama bin Laden. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if Osama bin Laden was killed in the earthquake in Pakistan. You know, the, the 7.6 recent earthquake in Pakistan, you know, it's... Maybe a little while down the the road, we'll hear that that Osama was his cave collapsed on him or something, and they'll pull off his fake beard and they'll see that he's a Carl Rove clone. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing that I find interesting about Hawaii is this uh, agriculture diversity that happened before this kind of essential overthrow and the way that the people who lived on the island were essentially self-sustaining. And because there are so many climates in the world, essentially almost all types of food can be grown there. Um, but now we, people who live there are extremely dependent on food being shipped in from outside of Hawaii. Uh, I believe it's about 90% of oh, all, all food is shipped to Hawaii. And... The theory is that if anything were ever to happen to the shipping industry, we would only have enough food to last for 12 days. But uh, but uh, back to the education system is, you know, originally the idea was to teach your children how to fish, how to farm, how to provide at least for themselves and their own family. And through putting children in, in these education programs where they're learning math and reading they're they're not really learning how to sustain themselves in the event that something might happen it's essentially creating a dependency whether it be on the military or on tourism and we see a basically really resourceful people being completely dependent on the government that sort of thing is, is mirrored all over the place where you have people that are completely dependent on the state, you know, for everything that they have. And it's sort of been engineered to be this way for people to, you know, for, for them, food comes from the grocery store. There are, there are no cows. There are only steak machines. And the people, if, you know, for some strange reason that half of the country of America got cut off from food supply, guess what would happen? Everyone would starve because they wouldn't know how to find the cows. <laughs> 
Well, and essentially, as I said before, the island of Molokai, which has 7,000 people, it has kind of been the only stronghold in the islands. They, they can sustain themselves, but they're constantly having pressure from outside forces to abandon that way of life and put your children in school. And now they have the compulsory education system that if you are not taking your child to school, you are taken to court and have to prove why your child is not in school. That's after they've given them the MMR vaccine and a whole load of other seriously poisonous shit to screw up their brains in the first place. Well, and we see a very high incident of autism also in Hawaii, especially on the military bases among children who are have children of enlisted soldiers that have an extremely high rate of the autism. Well, that's it for this week. We thank you for listening. As usual, you can get more information about the topics that we've discussed at our website, www.signs-of-the-times.org. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>